Hey, hey, my little spitfires. This is Jordan Rayner here, and welcome to the very first episode of Jordan Talks A Lot. This podcast was inspired by my TikTok audience, which has blown up like crazy in the last month. I, I absolutely cannot believe uh, the followers that have just started showing up. Um, about four weeks ago, I only had 8,000 followers on TikTok, but then I had this random idea to just start telling stories about my life and about being a preacher's daughter, which comes with a crap ton of horror stories and funny stories and horrible stories. And so I just kind of started putting some of those out there and they started blowing up and I was like, okay, so people are kind of relating to this. That's crazy, but super cool. And the video that ended up really taking off and kind of launching my TikTok into the stratosphere was when I shared my story about almost being kidnapped in 2020. That was my first viral video. And people started clamoring, saying, you should start a podcast. You're great at telling stories. And, you know, I thought, well, I've got too much to do already. I'm a full time country music recording artist. I'm a you know, a touring musician, producer. I mean, like I've got my plate full. Like the last thing I need is to start a podcast and to have something else to keep track of and to have to do every week. But the more this TikTok thing started growing and more of you guys started showing up and it, it really started to flood the comment section, like you need to start a podcast. And I'm like, okay, fine. And I've actually really started to enjoy the true crime corner of TikTok and to kind of start telling not only my stories, but the stories of other people that fascinate me, inspire me, scare the crap out of me. And so here we are, 2023, and this is the very first episode of Jordan Talks A Lot. And as you can tell, we're only two minutes into this podcast and I've already talked a lot. i pretty much came out of the womb talking. I am a born and natural and incurable entertainer. Um, I love to entertain people. I love to make people feel. I, I don't really care what I make you feel. If I enrage you or if I make you laugh or if I make you, you know, think about something, my whole, the, the thing that makes me tick is just to make people feel. And for most of my life, being a musician and a singer, you know, that's been the way that I've been able to do that. I'm a songwriter. And that's really where the storyteller side of me was born. I mean, from the time that I could really form words and, and write with a pencil or whatever, I was writing. I was journaling. I love words. I love language. I love to tell stories. I mean, um, we had a little PC computer when I was a kid. And I mean, it was a dinosaur of a thing. Okay, it was the early 90s. But we had a little word processor on that computer. And I would sit and I would type, you know, my dad taught me how to type. And I would just make up these stories. And I and I thought they were books. I, I was writing books, you know, I was creating characters. And basically, you know, I have always loved to tell stories. And Again, as my musical interests grew, those two kind of merged and I started writing songs and that led me to move to Nashville um, in my mid-20s and I got my first publishing deal and I ended up working with Grammy-nominated producer Ilya Tashinsky and he produced uh, some singles of mine that are out right now and we're currently nominated for three Texas Country Music Awards this year, which is crazy. So all that to say, storytelling has been the way that I've connected with people for years and just to find this new way of doing it on TikTok has been really fun. And I'm really excited to get this podcast going. 
and just to talk a lot about whatever I feel like talking about. So I thought for this first episode, I would just kind of take you through my story, you know, growing up as a preacher's kid and what that looked like and just kind of let you guys get to know me on a deeper level than TikTok will let me um, tell you, you know, I get three minutes at a time on TikTok and y'all, y'all have done it now. Listen, you, you've gotten me to start a podcast, which means I get to talk and ramble as long as I want. I don't have a time limit and you're, you're stuck with it now. So, uh, I hope you're happy with yourself because you've, you've done this. <laughs> so I was born in Atoka, Oklahoma, and my dad was a music minister for years and years before he kind of upgraded and became a pastor. And my mom, you know, she is a, a pianist, an incredible vocalist. And so music and religion were what I was born into. And I was raised in what I call the Christian music revolution. Um, so uh, like in the in the late 80s, early 90s, Christian music started taking a major uh, stylistic turn. Um, up until then, you know, Christian music had been predominantly like Southern gospel, trio gospel, very safe, very tame. And again, in the in the late eighties, early nineties, people like Michael W. Smith, Stephen Curtis Chapman, um, Carmen, kind of bursted onto the scene, and it completely revolutionized the way that Christian music was approached. They had electric guitars, they had drums, they had background vocals. It was edgy, it was brand new, and it totally took the Christian world by storm. Now, now listen, anybody that knows me, like my friends and family, know that I was a hardcore, diehard, obnoxiously obsessed Stephen Curtis Chapman fan. I absolutely loved Stephen Curtis Chapman. Um, he was he kind of came on the scene as I was, you know, getting to be five, six, seven years old, and he was all over the radio. And his music was infectious to me. And apparently, you know, I was not the only one. Um, his music really took Christian radio by storm, and it kind of paved the way for people like Audio Adrenaline, DC Talk, um, tons of artists like that. And because Christian music kind of turned Christian culture on its head, churches started trying to incorporate that into their services and their worship services. And so, again, as I call it, the Christian music revolution, my dad was among those early ministers in the 90s that started trying to implement drums, guitars, that Christian radio sound into church services. Now, for anybody that's also a preacher's kid or was, you know, a minister's kid, deacon's kid back in this time period, like you'll you'll remember this. It was hugely controversial and it split up so many churches. It started so many fights because it was basically the traditionalists against the progressive you know, crazy um, heathen rock and rollers. Right. And so my dad was one of the heathen rock and rollers, which, you know, I, I had the cool dad. I thought dad was so cool. He was a rebel. And unfortunately, you know, my dad was kind of one of those, you know, how they talk about, you know, if you're going to bust through a brick wall, you know, it's the it's the people on the front lines that come out the bloodiest and you know, have the hardest time. You know, my dad was one of those that was breaking down the wall first. And so Naturally, our family was a little bloodier in the battle than people, you know, a little later on down the line. And um, and so 
that that's part of I think how I kind of developed my sense of being an entertainer because I was thrown into new schools constantly. I mean, it seems like every couple of years I was the new kid in school, which if you grew up that way, like whether you were a military kid, preacher's kid, whatever, if you were in a situation where you had to move schools a lot, I don't know if you relate to this, but my the part that I dreaded the most about like the first day at a new school was lunchtime because all the other kids had grown up there. They knew the drill. They knew which lines to get into. They knew where to get the trays. They knew what to do with their trays. And there's for some reason that was always such like a vulnerable feeling for me is walking into a crowded lunchroom and not knowing, well, where do I get in line? Do I where do I pick up my tray? Where do I put my tray when it's done? Like I, I hated that helpless feeling of everybody knows what to do but me. And so making people laugh and being the class clown was kind of how I rallied troops around me and made friends. And that really has stuck. And again, as I mentioned earlier, that has carried me through adulthood. I love to make people laugh. I love to make people feel. I love to be the center of attention, period. So that's probably somehow from childhood trauma that I haven't dealt with, but it's fine. So there's tons of stories, obviously, that I can unpack about, you know, kind of growing up in the church and the the different things that I've experienced, the fights that I've seen, the incredible things that I've seen. And that's kind of what this podcast is for, right? Is for me to unpack those stories and share them with you, along with tons of true crime stories, just survival stories. We're, we're going to cover so much cool stuff on this podcast, and I cannot wait. But to kind of move you along through my story and to kind of move you up to where I am today, I got to take you to when I was 12 years old, Christmas Day, I got my first guitar. And that really, that Christmas started the first day of the rest of my life. I know that's kind of, you know, it's a cliche. People say that all the time. But that really was the first day of my future. I became obsessed with that guitar. I slept with it beside me. I took it everywhere. I mean, if we went to a friend's house, if we went to family's house, if we went to Walmart, that guitar was in the car with me and it went everywhere because I was I was so afraid that maybe, you know, if we left and went somewhere, the house would burn down and my guitar would be in it. So we we took that guitar everywhere. And as I mentioned earlier, I was a huge Stephen Curtis Chapman fan because, again, I grew up in a conservative Southern Baptist household and we were not allowed to listen to secular music. So I didn't grow up on the Eagles and you know, all the all the the great bands that people take for granted and grew up with. I was listening to Audio Adrenaline, DC Talk, Carmen, Stephen Curtis Chapman, Michael W. Smith, all those guys. But Stephen Curtis Chapman was the guy that I absolutely thought the world of because he was known as being an incredible guitar player. Like that's his records, his CDs were all so guitar heavy. Um, the the guitar riffs and stuff, that was part of his signature sound. And that just was infectious to me. And so when I was learning to play guitar, I used his records to learn how to play guitar. Like I would sit there, um, the Speechless album by Stephen Curtis was the album that kind of set my future in motion as far as my style, the way that I would ultimately play guitar for the rest of my life. You know, the first track on that CD was a song called Dive, and it was a huge freaking hit uh, in Christian music, huge hit. And that that signature riff, that was kind of one of the first signature 
riffs on guitar that I learned to play, but I ultimately learned to play that whole record front to back, every lick, every riff. And I was only 12, 13 years old. I mean, I was very young, but that's how I spent my time as a kid. I, I didn't go to prom. I didn't go to homecoming and football games. I was super introverted, which is, it's a weird, I guess, kind of paradox because I'm so introverted and intimidated by crowds if I'm just part of the crowd. But at the same time, I'm such an attention whore and I absolutely love being the center of attention. If there's a stage, if there's somewhere where you can put a spotlight on me, I'm a totally different person. So it's it's really weird, that contrast. But um, I learned to play that record. And so because I was so quickly excelling in music at such an early age, of course, my dad incorporated me into the church bands and the youth bands, and I became kind of the lead singer for the youth bands and whatnot. And um, naturally, just because that was the environment that I was raised in, that cut a path for me to want to be a worship leader like my dad. And so growing up as a teenager, you know, I really embraced that and thought that that was my, what we call in the church, my calling. And as a young kid um, in Southern Baptist culture, one of the the hip things, one of the trends back in the day was to quote unquote, surrender to the ministry. That was something like youth pastors and stuff were constantly kind of encouraging these youth kids to do during invitation. They would, they would, you know, preach a sermon and then they would have somebody play piano or something afterward. And they would hold an invitation and say, if there's anybody here tonight that wants to accept the Lord as their savior or surrender to the ministry or surrender to the mission field, like they were just always trying to provoke us to take some kind of action and to take some kind of stand. And well, me being the overachiever and wanting to be the absolute best at everything I did, I wanted to be the best at being a Christian too. So I was like, I'm going to be a super Christian. Not only am I going to be a worship leader, not only am I going to be a musician, but I'm going to surrender to the ministry. And I'm going to make this my whole life. And so like at age 14 or 15, I um, walked down that aisle and I told the pastor, I want to surrender to the ministry. And so they made a big deal about that. They had everybody come after the service and shake my hand and congratulate me. And I thought I was freaking, you know, superwoman for Jesus. And I really stuck with that path for a long time. And I was sincere in it. It's not like, you know, I I, kind of talk about it lightly just because my perspective on church culture has changed a lot um, as far as, you know, the pressures that I think they put on people, especially in my generation to I want to say that they were well-intentioned. You know, those churches were well-intentioned, but um, I think encouraging those people to take those steps and to surrender to the ministry and to make such a public display of it was as much so the church could have something to kind of hold up and say, hey, look, we're doing something. We're accomplishing something. We're changing lives. I think it was as much kind of a a trophy for the church as it was for, you know, the people making those decisions. So my, I, you know, I, I don't talk about it you know, frivolously, like, you know, ministry is a joke or anything like that. But I will say, again, I was very um, immersed in church culture. And so I was sincere in that. I I wanted to change the world. I wanted to touch people's lives. And I thought, you know, I'm going to change the world for Jesus and I'm going to do it through music. And as I got older, you know, get to be 17, 18, 19, even 20 years old, the the church music revolution had definitely taken hold. A ton of churches had been modernized 
And a new wave of revolution kind of had started about the time that I turned 18 or 19. And that was what I would call the Jesus culture movement. And this was basically a transformation of, hey, you know, you guys did a great job of modernizing church music. You know, people like my dad. Again, we were the bloodied warriors that went 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 into battle first. And then this next generation took it over and said, OK, now that was great, but we are going to take it to the next level. And so people like Kim Walker Smith, Carrie Job, and some of these uh, very passionate, very expressive worship leaders came onto the scene and it changed once again how churches saw worship. And Hillsong was a big part of that too. Hillsong was one of the OG um, kind of churches and movements to start that expressive new kind of worship. And so I really hit a stride in that because I mean, I don't know if it was just because, again, I'm a born entertainer and I just pick up quickly, but I really found that very easy to to move into and to adapt at, into my own style. And so as a worship leader, I became one of those very expressive, loud, passionate worship leaders who would pray over the congregation and would try to speak prophetic words that, you know, I thought the Lord was giving me. I wanted to be, again, I'm such an overachiever. I am a type A. Anything that I commit to doing, I do it a thousand percent and I want to be better at it than everybody else. Hence, you know, in a month I've gained half a million TikTok followers because once I decided I'm going to be a TikToker, I became a TikToker. It's just what I do. And so, Naturally, if there was a top tier in worship leaders, I wanted to be among them. And so I adapted the the style, the mannerisms, the approach of these worship leaders who were globally known and seeing tons of results. And and by results, I mean, you know, in their videos, you could see people crying and worshiping and lifting their hands. I, I thought that that was the the reason that worship leaders existed was to get that result and to put people in a place where they could experience God at a deeper level. I thought that was my responsibility. And because I became so good at that, I mean, I I got jobs at churches very young. Um, again, churches that church plants, for example, you know, these young startup churches that wanted to find the diamond in the rough worship leader that they could kind of bring up. And, and I think, sadly, you know, some of these church plants that I was a part of in my 20s, They all had aspirations to be the next, you know, big church, the next big thing. And they wanted to scoop up the next big worship leader that nobody had heard of yet. I mean, unfortunately, I really do think somewhere, even if people wouldn't admit it, that that was I think that was a thought somewhere down, at least in their subconscious, you know. And um, so because I was so good at that and I was kind of a knockoff Carrie Job. Um, church plants were fighting over me and calling me even at 20 and being like, Hey, will you be our worship leader? We'll bring you in. And, um, there was one church plant that was very well funded and they paid me an absurd amount of money, um, as a 20 year old to come and be their worship leader. And I did that for a while. And ultimately that's where I met my then husband. I'm, I'm divorced now, but I met my husband. He was a worship leader as well. He was a, a great guitarist. And so we, as worship leaders, you know, found each other and started leading worship together at the same church. And our church kind of shipped us and they were like, oh my gosh, y'all would be such a great couple. And 
everybody was just like, well, when are you going to marry? You know, I won't say his name because I haven't gotten his permission to say his name. And I I don't want to, um, you know, do anything to in- encroach on his privacy. He's got his own family now and his own life. And that's fine. Um, but, you know, when, when are you going to marry him? Or they would talk to him, be like, when are you going to marry Jordan? You know, it was kind of like a ha-ha thing. But um, I'd had a, a crush on him forever, and I kind of chased him down. And he actually, he didn't want anything to do with me because I had been engaged to his best friend at one point. And I broke off the engagement just because, I don't know, I just felt it it wasn't right. Um, so I had broken up with his best friend. And so he was like, uh, yeah, I know you like me, but bro code, I'm not going to date you. I'm not going to do anything with you because you dumped my best friend. Well, again, I'm nothing if not persistent and determined. So I kind of broke down his walls and, uh, you know, we fell in love and got married. And of course, you know, my church loved that. And it was kind of the the two superstar worship leaders of the church, you know, falling in love. And it was this whole thing, you know, it it was um, kind of the, the storybook church, <laughs> church minister story. So, I mean, that was that was cool and all. And. Uh, we, we led worship together for a couple of years and about two years into our marriage, we, you know, I say felt a calling. I, I, I question that a bit now because again, my, my perspective has changed so much as to how I interpret callings and, you know, again, church, church culture has a way of making you see things and interpret things that, I just I don't know how accurate they are anymore, but we believed at that time that we felt God calling us to the mission field and we prayed about it. And I'll I'll spare you all the details, but basically an open door presented itself for us to go to the Philippines for like the better part of a year. And, you know, I will say this, you know, I'm I'm very adventurous. I think a big part of that is, you know, we moved around so much as a kid. I never learned to put down roots. And so I was never afraid to just pack up and be like, sure, let's go. And my ex-husband also had a very adventurous kind of uh, nomadic spirit about him. And so he was like, yeah, man, we're game. Let's go. I mean, it sounded like a big adventure to us and a big opportunity. And of course, we were superheroes for Jesus. And so, of course, we didn't go about it the smart way, like through an organization. We didn't go through any training or language training. We're just like, ah, heck, let's let's do it the way the Bible says to do it. Let's sell all our possessions and let's just go. And y'all, we did. We literally, we sold two paid off cars. We sold our furniture, our TVs, our beds. I mean, like anything that wasn't nailed down, we sold it. And we put a GoFundMe together. We raised about $10,000 and we bought two plane tickets to Southeast Asia and we went. (laughs) And it was a horrible mistake. Um, Everything that could go wrong did go wrong. And um, I'm sure I'll share some of those stories in this podcast uh, over time as well. But ultimately, we were supposed to spend a year there and we spent about... 30 days there. <laughs> we we came home. We came running home. And we were, of course, because we had sold everything and quit our jobs, we were then jobless, broke, homeless, carless. We had absolutely nothing. And we came home pretty much just in the worst shape you could possibly imagine. 
And it was the start of a really, really hard time. Um, you know, again, maybe I'll, I'll share some of those stories, too, just about how we dug ourselves out of that hole and, you know, what that looked like, because that's a whole story in and of itself. But ultimately, that began the journey toward Nashville and country music for me, um, because when we got home, like I said, we we had nothing. We had nowhere to go. And so we basically pulled up Google Maps and we said, OK, we've got to start completely over somewhere. We didn't want to go back to our hometown and our home church that we had left from because we, we felt like failures anyway. And to go back to that church where we had essentially left, we felt like that would just be going backwards and it would feel like we never you know, really left at all. And we wanted to move forward. We didn't want to go backwards. And so we said, okay, let's pull up Google Maps and let's just point to a spot on the map. And wherever we point to, that's where we're moving. And so we did. We pulled up Google Maps, we pointed, and our finger landed on Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And so we said, okay, off we go. So very, very long story, much shorter. Again, I'll go into the details sometime. But I landed a job at Target in Murfreesboro, and he landed a job at Best Buy uh, in Nashville. And so that was like, okay, we've got our green light. We started our jobs there. We found a little cracker box apartment that was so tiny, so tiny. I mean, like you could sit on the toilet and make a grilled cheese at the same time. Like it was so, um, (laughs) it was so tiny. But um, so we moved there. And because, of course, we were that close to Nashville, I started um, getting into the country music scene and started writing with some country writers and some country artists and found an absolute love for country music that I didn't even know I had. Not to mention, I found out I was really good at it. It was a new way for me to tell stories. You know, all of a sudden I was in this culture where, you know, we were writing songs and we were writing about anything we wanted. It wasn't just about Jesus and healing and oceans and things like that. Like all of a sudden there's this brand new world of music and I can tell stories about wives killing their husbands. I can tell stories about cheating, smoking, drinking, just interesting things. And I I absolutely loved this new way of getting to tell stories. Now, as it turned out, I had, um, I had a medical disorder that I didn't know I had. And I had always struggled with my voice. Um, I, I just, I'd al- I was always raspy. I always had a very limited range. And a lot of times it was very painful for me to sing, which is weird because, you know, I was going to be a career worship leader. But even as a worship leader, I struggled and battled and fought with my voice and I never knew what was wrong with it. Um, and it seemed to get a lot worse after the Philippines. And I'm, I'll tell you why here in a minute and it'll make a lot of sense. But after we got back from the Philippines, my voice all but disappeared um, I really, I, I could barely croak a note out and I thought, okay, well, my life is over, but nonetheless, I thought, okay, well, I'm in Nashville. I'm in the land of opportunity. Songwriters make great livings. And so I'll just write the songs, sell them to, to artists and make a great living. And maybe I won't be a singer after all. And I would later, uh, find out that I have a little, birth defect where basically the little sphincter in my stomach that is supposed to close and keep stomach acid in my stomach, it didn't close. It just didn't work. And so 
all my life, stomach acid had been washing up into my vocal cords, into my larynx, up into my nose and up, even into my sinuses. I have I'd had chronic sinus infections my whole life and sinus headaches that I never knew was coming from just this incurable acid reflux. And so I finally went to a voice coach here in Nashville because I was so frustrated. I just like I wanted to be able to sing to my fullest. And I was so tired of being raspy and having my voice cut off, you know. So I went and saw a voice coach and she said, well, have you ever been tested for like acid reflux? And I said, no. So I went to an ENT and found out, you know, what I know now is that my, you know, stomach sphincter doesn't close. And so if I don't sleep you know, with my bed propped up at an angle, you know, stomach acid is going to wash up into my cords. And basically, y'all, my vocal cords had been fried in stomach acid my whole life. And so I started getting treated for that. And little by little, as my vocal cords were starting to heal, I discovered that I had uh, a really cool voice and I had a massive range. I actually have a five octave range um, that I've developed over time. And all of a sudden, here's this new like second chance at music that I was not expecting. And I found out I can sing. And so that opened up a whole new avenue. And I said, well, what if I didn't just write the songs? What if I sang the songs myself and I pursued being an artist? And that, again, was kind of the the new first day of the rest of my life. And at the age of 26, I believe it was, I really... Like, I'm going to be a recording artist, I'm going to sing country music, and I'm going to do it with everything I have. Because again, if I set my mind to something, I'm going to do it full force. And by this time, I had already started to really become disenchanted with church culture and was starting to be be able to see it kind of for what it was and some of the toxic things that, that it pushed on people. And so I had started withdrawing and leading worship less and less. Now, my my ex-husband, husband at the time, he was still, you know, full on, full steam ahead ministry. That's what he loved, and he loved leading worship. And so, you know, he was still very much active in the church, and that's what he wanted to do. And my passion really shifted, and I became just head over heels in love with country music, and I became very good at it, and found a culture and a circle of friends that I related a lot more to than I was relating to the church at the time. And so as that shift started taking place, um, it introduced a lot of conflict and tension in an already struggling marriage. We, we were struck. We had struggled basically the whole time that we were married and, you know, me kind of going through this shift, not, not just career wise, but just as a person, you know, I, I started losing weight. You know, I was, I was a pretty, overweight individual, you know, for a lot of my life. And, you know, when I started really pursuing this, this career as an artist, you know, I wanted to look my best, feel my best. I wanted to be in shape for when I was on stage, you know, so I didn't get out of breath. And so I dropped almost 50 pounds and I really started taking care of myself. And I just found this new confidence that I had never had before that honestly, I didn't even feel like I was allowed to have um, back when I was really immersed in church culture, because again, church culture, at least in my experience, it's it's not everybody's experience, but in my experience, you know, the more you hated yourself and the more you kind of put yourself down and called yourself 
worthless and called yourself broken or screwed up. Like basically the, the, the lower you thought of yourself, the more you loved Jesus because you could let Jesus be your everything. Right. And, you know, it was seen as humility. Basically the more, the more you hated yourself, the more humble and needy for Jesus you were. And so church culture, in my experience, really did not promote uh, self-confidence or taking care of yourself or basically just being proud of anything that you do. And the more that I started to distance myself from that way of thinking and just started saying, you know what, I like myself and I like what I do and I like the music I create and I want to look good. I want to feel good. And I basically just found this this brand new woman it uh it continued to drive a wedge um in my marriage and it 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 became apparent that you know my ex-husband and I were just two very different people and he had different interests he had different goals and ultimately you know I got divorced in 2020 and here we are today um I've become you know full-time TikToker YouTuber country music artist I am um you know, full steam ahead with my career. I'm happier than I've ever been. I'm doing things for a living that I never imagined that I'd be doing. And uh, I'm currently up for three Texas Country Music Awards this year, including New Female Artist of the Year, Single of the Year, and Music Video of the Year, which is super crazy. And I'm so, so blessed because, you know, my Oklahoma, Texas roots, um, that's that's ultimately, you know, who I am. And as an artist, the way that I the way that I sing, I'm very still old school country at heart because that's just, you know, I love the old school storytelling. I love the old school sound. And so my voice, as I have developed my voice and found my voice, um, I get kind of compared a lot to some of the old school acts like Dolly and Reba, which is a huge compliment because that's that's who I love and that's who inspires me. So um you know, I'm really, really grateful that the Texas country music uh, industry has embraced me and has embraced my music and got a bright future ahead. And I'm very excited about where this podcast is headed, where TikTok is headed. And I'm going to take you along for the journey. This podcast, you know, is called Jordan Talks a Lot. And that means I'm going to talk a lot and I'm going to talk about whatever I feel like. I love true crime. I love paranormal stories. I love ghost stories. And so, this podcast is going to be a little bit of a mashup of everything that I'm interested in. So some days we'll be talking about church culture, preacher's kids stories, and some days we'll be talking about true crime and uh, basically just whatever I feel like. And I'm going to try to start uploading these uh, once a week. Um, I'd like to do two a week and maybe maybe I'll be ambitious and I'll start two a week. But for now, just with me having everything else that I do have on my plate, I'm going to try to do this once a week, and I really appreciate you being here and listening, and uh, I hope that you will continue to follow this podcast and to listen and that you'll be a part of my journey for many years to come. That's going to do it for today's podcast. Thank you so much. Again, I am your host, Jordan Rayner. Stay bad, stay brave, and stay beautiful. 